0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week, it's a Royal Academy special... It's now 250 years since the Academy was founded and the institution is marking the anniversary with a new development which unites Burlington House, which is the Academy's traditional HQ on Piccadilly, with Burlington Gardens, a Victorian building with a chequered history at the back of the Royal Academy. Initially part of the University of London and some decades later the British Museum outpost, the Museum of Mankind, it was acquired by the Royal Academy in 2001 and has since been used by commercial galleries and the RA itself. David Chipperfield, the British architect, won a competition to bring the buildings together in 2008 and now, ten years later, it's about to open. I spoke to David Chipperfield about the project and first to Charles Somers-Smith, the Chief Executive and Secretary of the Royal Academy. Charles, in the press conference this morning you mentioned that you'd been putting a lot of effort into fundraising for this project. Tell me where we're at with that now. You're in touching distance.
1: We're within touching distance of £56 million, so that... Um, that has preoccupied me, but not just me. The chairman of the Royal Academy Trust, Christopher's president, we've had a fundraising uh, a committee. The reason I said it is precisely because people often forget that the project wouldn't happen if it didn't have funding. So a lot of the work, the, the, the design in a project like this happens quite quickly. What takes the time is getting planning permission and then getting the funding.
0: And what's the climate been like for fundraising?
1: Well, uh, we were, as I said in the press conference, incredibly helped by the fact we got a big grant from the Heritage Lodge Fund. I would worry for projects like this in the future, because the Heritage Lodge Fund provides the bulwark of the funding. It's not not just in terms of the amount of money, it's more that it gives other donors confidence. So trusts and foundations, I think, know that the Heritage Lodge Fund does a huge amount of due diligence.
0: And so you would worry for other projects in what sense? Because the, because the funding well, climate because, is that uh, much more Well, because now? Heritage Larger
1: Fund is pulling back from big capital projects. I think they've given up doing projects over £5 million. So the National Portrait Gallery classically got a big grant from the Heritage Larger Fund for its new building project and has just announced a big donation of £5 million from the Western Foundation. We too got a big grant from the Western Foundation.
0: Now, there was a letter written to The Guardian last week by around 100 artists, which was about the EBAC, which is this new curriculum in in British education, which is taking out art from the curriculum. Are we entering a phase where art is being taken out of the centre, both in terms of education and funding?
1: I think there is, rightly, a huge sense of anxiety to do with the fact that obviously people won't become artists if they're not taught it at school, it's like music if you don't get some level of access to art facilities traditionally people who have done art in school have not necessarily been the most academic so it's been a way I think to encourage social mobility a lot of the artists who are now major artists pretty well all of them benefited from an environment in which they got state funding for uh, to attend art school many of them then did ma's at the royal college but they would have been funded for that now if you go to the royal college of Art, i think it costs eighteen thousand a year well that incredibly narrowly restricts the number of numbers of people
0: who are going to be able to do it now it's good that you're talking about that because one of the key aspects it seems to me almost the the honk beat is it fair to say of this new development is the schools which have always been part of the Royal Academy but somewhat hidden and they are now actually visible to the public.
1: I I freely confess that when I came to the Royal Academy I knew conceptually that there was something called the Royal Academy schools but I certainly didn't realise the extent to which they're the heart of both the Royal Academy as it is and as it thinks about itself. Teaching and training the next generation and doing it for free is a central part of the Royal Academy's mission and I think that sense of opening it up so it's visible was at the heart of David's idea of having this route through where you can walk through and get a sense of what the nature of the Academy is
0: So tell me about the, this project then it, it's, it's about connecting two um, buildings with their own character with their own distinctive spaces what was the intention behind it?
1: Well, there's an architectural aspect in that we bought a new building and so how we renovated it and what we did inside it was one part of it. But I think conceptually, a lot of it is based around this idea that it's not, we're not just an exhibition venue. In the 1870s, we started doing exhibitions alongside the summer exhibition. And from the 1920s, we've been known really as a big exhibition venue. People have forgotten about the schools. People have forgotten about the fact we do a lot of teaching. People have forgotten that we do adult programmes. So that conceptually, I think it's, I like to think, going back to the original idea of an academy as a complex place which is involved in the practice of art, not just the exhibition of art.
0: The president of the Royal Academy, Christopher Lebrun, talked about entering a new golden age for the academy. What do you think he meant by that? I think he's very aware, as I am, that in the
1: 20th century, most of the 20th century, the Academy was viewed as a slight anachronism, that it was a backwater, it promoted rather traditional practice, the summer exhibition nobody would pretend was part of the mainstream of the contemporary avant-garde. And I, I personally think over a long period of time, from the 80s probably... Big name, major practitioners have been willing to have their name put forward when they've been offered election, they've accepted. So David Hockney, uh, Anthony Gormley, Anish Kapoor, Tracey Emmin, David Chibville. People used to be slightly apologetic. Even when I started, you could tell a generation of people who'd been at art school in the 50s were still a bit apologetic about the academy. I think now it does have a great sense of confidence.
0: Can you tell us something about how the artists and architects run this place? Because obviously we know that there is this body of Royal Academicians. I think some people perhaps think it's something of a myth that they are in charge, as it were. But, But tell me how it works. So the key is that the council, which is the governing body,
1: and essentially the trustees, are nearly all artists. Before I came, they changed the rules so that there are three outside people. At the time, I thought, that's rather insignificant because the majority is still artists. And when we say it's artists-run, it means that the governing body is preeminently and predominantly artists and architects. And that does make a difference because now the orthodoxy is that governing bodies are people from business who are bringing business skills, business acumen. Actually, if you have artists... They have a different attitude to creative practice.
0: It, it seems odd to say it, but in a sense, the Royal Academy has been something of a Kunsthalle uh, in the last, uh, well, in recent history. What you're trying to do here, it seems to me, is make it a destination. You want people to come and visit, even when there are not the major exhibitions on. You want, you want people to drop by into the Royal Academy in a way that perhaps they'd never been able to before. Is that yeah,
1: fair? yeah, our slogan has been not just a Kunsthalle. If you go to a Kunsthalle, if you come to the David Hockney exhibition, you come into the courtyard, you buy a ticket, you go up the stairs, you see the exhibition, and then you go back home. But most cultural visiting and cultural experience now, I think is much more about individual exploration, being able to come and dip into things, go to a lecture, hear somebody talk about art, explore the building, see the collection, and then maybe go to an exhibition. So you don't view the experience of art as just going to an exhibition.
0: And what do the new spaces for exhibitions allow you to do?
1: So at the back of Burlington Gardens, we've got a very, very beautiful, I think, set of three exhibition galleries, which were originally the examination rooms when it was the headquarters of the University of London. And that will enable us to add a third... Stream of exhibitions. We will do one architectural exhibition a year, so we're doing Renzo Piano in the autumn, and then I think each autumn we'll do an architectural exhibition. And then Chastatine is, I think, quite programmatic in that she's a middle generation RA. Um, her work is known, and of course it coincides with exhibitions at the National Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery. I've always viewed it as an opportunity for the RAs themselves to be more
0: involved in programming. Right. So we're going to see a lot more contemporary
1: More contemporary. I mean those spaces lend themselves to contemporary exhibition. I've always seen the you know, the big exhibition galleries, we can only do things which attract large numbers of people. That determines the programme. Upstairs in the second gallery, I like to think we have a long tradition of doing thoughtful and intelligent Mainly art historical exhibitions. For me, these are preeminently contemporary galleries.
0: Well, you've ended up with what I think is a really beautiful project, so congratulations. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. David, this project had already been through something of a difficult gestation in the sense that two architects had already looked at it Colin St. John Wilson and Michael Hopkins. Did that history affect the way that you began to approach it? Well, clearly, we were,
2: um, in a way, uh, warned by the previous approaches, both of which I think were very legitimate and understandable in their, in their own time. And I think they represented uh, also slightly different moments. I would, I would say that the Hopkins project was conceived in the sort of early days of lottery and, and these sort of grand visions, and it was a much more let's say it's a very it was a very bold uh, project which which um maybe stumbled because of its its boldness um I, I suppose yes there was a sort of um um three bears um you know one's too hot one's too cold and once we came in the middle and with uh, with just the right right one um you know not too bold not too meek but sort of right, and and to some degree, I suppose, territory was prepared for us.
0: So, tell me what you have done then. I mean, there's there's terms like light touch being used, and indeed the interventions are sort of noticeable, but not dramatic and not imposing. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the, the, the
2: competition that we were put through concentrated very much on how we might approach the fabric of Burlington Gardens building. Uh, As it panned out, we ended up with three questions that had to be dealt with. One is that, how do we, you know, in what way would you uh, deal with the Burlington Gardens building, given that it's a slightly clumsy building, it wasn't built for a museum, and it has a high proportion of circulation space. Quite difficult spaces in a way, and had been really, um, I would say, humiliated (laughs) through time by having had its sort of good bits chopped off and um, been slowly emasculated in its in its qualities. So, Royal Academy was sort of a little bit confused as to, you know, what is the identity of that building. The second was, um, if we use it, what would that, the best uses be for it you know in other words what what should the Royal Academy uh, move there or what should we how should we colonize it and should we just put things in that don't fit in the other building you know is it just a dustbin of of uh, sort of overlap you know is it just a sort of overspill uh, anything that doesn't fit fit into the sort of headquarters we sort of move in there should it be a sort of outpost should we start you know, doing things in there that the Royal Academy, you know, should it be a sort of a lab? Um, and then, second and thirdly, um, how do we connect the two together? Because, in, in a way, the other two questions depend on that as well, especially the one about use. Because if you can have a, a fluid connection, maybe what's on one side of the wall, and what's on the other side of the wall is not such a big decision. You know, if you can easily go from one to the other, then maybe you can split things. If it's a really difficult transition, maybe it has to be slightly more self-sustaining. So those were the three three things we had to deal with. You know, approach to the building fabric itself. What should we do with this Victorian building uh, in terms of how do we how do we in, how do we deal with it architecturally? Secondly, what should be in this house? And thirdly, how should the two houses be connected?
0: I like that you use the word permeable to describe what you've done to this building. You've made it more permeable. You've made it more able for people to um, navigate their way through these buildings.
2: Well, one of the gifts of um, being given the Burlington Gardens building for the Royal Academy is that all of a sudden it's got a front door to the whole hinterland of Bond Street and Cork Street and a different version of London than Piccadilly, especially a different version than, Pic- than Piccadilly across a courtyard, um, through a lodger and then into the Royal Academy. So you could argue that um, this version of, of uh, Front Door uh, is something quite useful to have and therefore shouldn't you uh, enjoy that? Um, Institutions don't really enjoy two front doors very easily um, because if that's if, if that's your ticketing threshold, let's say, um, then you have to duplicate. Now, if you could do it in such a way where the two front doors are somehow connected as part of public space, um, then you could benefit not only the fact that one house has two front doors... But that you could nearly walk through from one door to the other; that you could see this as a, as a symbol of permeability and of institutional transparency, not just the convenience of being able to enter the building from one side or the other. And I think that's what we played upon. And, and um, uh, Charles, uh, no, I think Christopher Lebrun said he liked to see this as the new Burlington Arcade, and I think he's right in the sense that. Um, you know, the the demographic uh, mixtures of these two different conditions of these two different uh, front doors is quite different. And therefore, the idea of being able to elaborate this, not only by having two front doors, but actually linking those two front doors in a strong gesture, uh, I think was fundamental to the project.
0: I was impressed that you spoke much more about people than about, say, materials when you talked in the press conference earlier on. And that seems to me to be at the, absolutely at the heart of this. It's about uniting people in spaces. Can you tell me about that?
2: Well, we've worked a lot with institutions. And, and the um, of course, I, when people employ architects, they get terribly excited because what they want to talk about is design and they want pictures. And as architects, we, the first thing we want to talk about is um, program and function and the issues and problems and, um, and they're always a bit disappointed that we, we spend so much time wanting to know about them because they want to know about us sort of thing um, but my experience in working with complex institutions is that your role first and foremost is diagnostic you are trying to understand um, where do you put before you invent architecture where do you put it because architecture isn't something independent. It doesn't. No one wants uh, an architecture. <laughs> you you need an architecture to do something. So the, the first question is yes. So what is it you want the architecture to do? Um, and I think this is somehow a little bit misunderstood in the fog that we as architects also produce because we tend to produce images a lot, and um, our clients tend to encourage us because it's much easier to gather everybody around images than a sort of shopping list of things that one thinks one needs to deal with. But I think this project has been a, you know, which I believe is is always true is, 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 first of all a, a sort of diagnostic project sort of saying, what is it we need to achieve? And then you use architecture as the tool to achieve that. You don't use architecture first and then sort of post rationalize it. you And you only do the amount of architecture you need to fulfill the diagnosis. You don't start cutting the body up um, and doing extra work uh, once you've solved the problem.
0: As an institution, the RA is more complex than many and also is filled with architects and artists, with people with a strong visual sense, with a strong investment in uh, buildings and spaces. Has that made it more challenging or somehow uh, the opposite? Well, as you say, all, all museums
2: um, seem sort of calm on the outside, but there's a lot of um, flapping of legs under the water. Um, you know, they are complex institutions where people of different anxieties and concerns are cohabiting and working in the same way. Um, one person hangs a painting on a wall for curatorial reasons. Um, The restorers who are responsible for those paintings see that period while that painting is hanging up as a period of damage. The audience see it as a great opportunity of, of, of access and visibility. The person that paints the wall sees the height of the wall as being a pain, because how you know painting a five meter wall is a great problem he 's got to get scaffolding out and there, um, whereas the curator sees that height as being a gift uh, the people who run the shop or run the events, I and mean, people who run the events see every room in the building as a possible uh, catering venue and where can the caterers uh, put their kitchen um, they don 't see it as a gallery they see it. As Now, on the other hand, we need them to do that. We need the events department to um, look at it from that point of view. There are parts of an institution which are the hidden parts, which are fundamental to it, but they tend to get ignored in the glamorous side. Art handling is uh, one of the most bruised and neglected tribes in any museum. And if you are trying to art handle in W1 off Piccadilly, uh, in a in a 18th century building, uh, I can promise you, you have a really difficult now. In a project like this, to spend all our money in front of house and not solve any of the back of the house questions would have not been a smart thing to have done. So you've got to you've got to look after, or you've got to give some balance in how you solve some of these issues, and they are very overlapping. Um, I would say one of the most popular things we've done is provide new bathrooms. Uh, that, I think, will be, will be seen as one of our great achievements. Uh, the previous World Academy bathrooms were horrific, <laughs> and we've now got very good ones. Uh, however, in order to do that, we had to move around some art storage. In order to move the art storage around, we had to make sure that the uh, new facilities that we gave to art storage were... So it's a sort of Chinese puzzle where you... You move one thing, so moving the bathrooms also meant that we could free up space for the ticketing, which meant that we could free up the front hall of Burlington House. So there's there's a lot of uh, ducking and diving in order to get the whole machinery working better.
0: Obviously, with, with the architects who are part of the body of the Royal Academicians, there, are, there will be a lot of opinions about that. Did you consult other architects? Or did you feel that you had to be... The Royal Academy had given you your head and you had to therefore follow your own processes? Or did you, or did you see this as an opportunity for discussion?
2: No, the academicians have to approve everything, finally. Um, there were architects on the, um, the, the responsible committees... Uh, and were very important in that, and it was, you know, very encouraging and, and very supportive. So, um, and I would say the other thing is that um, this this process of diagnosis and what I call sort of punctual interventions um, is the correct way, I believe, but it's probably not the easiest one to sell because you don't have an overriding impression, um, and I, I think. In some institutions, it might have been difficult that there wasn't a sort of a big bang vision. Whereas in the Royal Academy, I think the the players here understood quite well that this wasn't a project of of a a sort of giant image. It was a matter of doing a number of exercises that would add up to something, as opposed to um, some big visual... um, gesture.
0: Now, I like the fact that you described the courtyard, which is sort of in the middle of Burlington House and Burlington Gardens, as a demilitarized zone. What did you mean by that?
2: Because it was, it was interstitial space that really didn't belong to either. I mean, it actually belonged much more, I think, to the Royal Academy, but um, it was uh, space that sat between um, two institutions and taking over Burlington Gardens. Uh, it meant that we could somehow think about how it became used, and, and the gap was a gap of separation, not a gap of, of connection. Um, it's still not going to be used as a as a proper public space, but it becomes a conscious, you know a sort of a visible and, and uh, identifiable space, and it will be used by the schools.
0: That's right, and so that's one of the interesting things about this project, isn't it? Because there are sort of private spaces in which. The public haven't have a certain level of access, but they 're not technically public spaces but again it 's about permeability and visibility isn't it
2: Yes, the, we're connecting two buildings together through their backs, and backs of institutions tend to be like the backs of the i mean they, they tend to be sort of where things get pushed um, so all of a sudden, two backs have had to become a front um, and in that process. Uh, we 've had to go through the schools, which was at the back of the institution um, and now it 's securely located you know in the middle um, in the middle physically and in the middle uh, consciously and I would say that 's probably one of the biggest and most profound issues of the whole connection, the whole story, which is that um, the 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 different activities which are um, embedded in the, Royal, in the Royal Academy, which vary from the library to the schools to the to the um, to the academicians and to the permanent collection. All of these things have been all a bit all over the place, and I think this new sort of kebab um, sort of skewers them all, and, and in a way identifies. As a sort of, you know, the sedimentary nature of the institution, which has up until now has been very layered. And if you were in one layer, you weren't really aware of the other layer. I think now that those layers will be, will be very visible.
0: David, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm now joined by Jane Morris, editor-at-large at at both the Art Newspaper and Culture Shock, to talk about the RA250 development and the new displays. Jane, what was your overall impression of the the new building and and what's in it?
3: It's a great step forward, isn't it? Um, There is so much more space There's so much more logic to the two buildings, which were very separate um, and divided, in fact, by Burlington Arcade. Effectively, if you wanted to go between the two, you had to go out of the building and through the shopping arcade and back in again. And I hope you didn't get distracted by Penhaligans or Sermonetta (laughs) gloves or any of the other sort of nice fripperies that they sell in Burlington Arcade. Um, And so now you can get between the two buildings. Really easily, and I think there's suddenly a sense of how big the building is, how lively the building is. Um, I, I think they should be very pleased with, you know, fifty six million. It's a lot of money, but I think they've got a lot for it.
0: And I think the the biggest shift is in that building at the back, Burlington Gardens. So Burlington Gardens has had this really checkered history. It's been all sorts of things. There's been commercial galleries in there. There was a Museum of Mankind, a sort of offshoot of the British Museum. There's been it's been a real hodgepodge for so long and at last it feels like a united space
3: absolutely and of course it wasn't built to be a museum or an academy it was actually a university of london space i believe but i know it and i imagine you would remember it too ben as the museum of mankind which was basically an ethnographic museum it was very dark it was full of lots of spears and all sorts of unusual and odd things now in the british museum and since The Royal Academy bought it in 2001. You're right, there's been this sort of uncertainty about what to do with it. There was a fire in 2006 and I remember going round the Charles Saatchi USA Today show and you could still, from memory, see where some of the singeing had been. The building felt confused and unloved and actually... Now we can see that it's really a very impressive building. It's not so complicated to understand. You go up the great big massive main staircase, and the rooms fan logically off that. so now that building is readable
0: on the whole, as david chipperfield is is keen to point out that you know there's a sort of light touch that's that's happened it's not it's not really overbearing architecture, but there are still some really beautiful I think aspects of the development that really reflect David Chipperfield's the identity of David Chipperfield's architecture let's talk first about this wonderful lecture theatre
3: so the lecture theatre is fantastic. It's a, a sort of contemporary version of a 19th century lecture space or even an operating theatre. If anybody knows the old operating theatre that's now a museum, that's, it's in Southwark, it's quite near uh, St Thomas's. It, it It's almost like a, a, a larger modern version of that. Um, it's very simple, very David Chipperfield, I agree. It, it, ma- it manages to do what he does so effortlessly, which is make something contemporary that is by no means pastiche, but somehow seems to fit effortlessly into an older building. And of course, this is what he won so much praise for, for the Neue Museum in Berlin. And I can see why, having done the Neue Museum, he was chosen for this project and why many museums with historic spaces would like him to work with them.
0: Indeed, and there's a real sense in which he, 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 he's enjoying using these historic spaces and just adding little touches to them that animate them somehow. I love the lime wash on the on the London yellow brick oh, that you see in the Oh, that
3: looks great. Vaults. That looks absolutely great. Um, so the vaults is a space that links. It's one of the linking spaces that basically links Burlington House to Burlington Gardens. And there are these nice touches, actually, all the way throughout, because the Royal Academy used to use anatomical sculptures um, they did do some dissecting but bodies were extremely hard to get hold of and I believe that Hunter did actually do some dissecting to show the students but in general what they did was they made uh, models casts um, of dead bodies that people could use for life drawing and again for me it was nice that there's that connection in the vaults with this lime wash and there are some flayed sculptures that they they were actually criminals bodies that were flayed and then cast which were used for anatomical study and then when you think of that lecture theatre you You can see there is that sort of connection to that kind of operating theatre lecture space, but it's very, very light touch. And I mean, I have to say, I think it's probably one of the best lecture theatres in London that I've seen. I think it is the best that I've seen.
0: It was interesting that Chipperfield, in his remarks at the press conference, when he was talking about the lecture theatre, he talked about it, wanting it to be a place of discussion rather than a sort of grand space in which someone would stand at the front and, and... And, and, and preach to the masses. It's very much, again, a sort of bringing people to the heart of the building. And that is absolutely, absolutely the ethos of the whole development, isn't it?
3: And of course, sort of literally in the middle of the building is the Royal Academy Schools. Now, when I was at art school, obviously I was aware that this course existed. It was a three-year, nobody else did a three-year post-grad course. It was a very small number of students. It's free. It was, it was free. and But at the time, it was probably rather more focused, I would say, on... Figurative painterly landscape painting, perhaps. Um, and now, of course, it's completely changed. It's it's probably now the the art school to go to if you can get in to one of those seventeen places. Indeed, there's uh, seventeen places in each year. I think six to eight hundred people apply for each of those seventeen places. So it now must be the most competitive to get into art school in London. Um, that's literally in the middle of the building. And this bridge, which links the two buildings, centres itself on the schools. And we are basically given, you're not allowed to go into the schools themselves. The students were Extremely concerned about being sort of animals in a zoo-like yeah, exhibit. Absolutely. and
0: you can see why. Yeah. Oh, I, I
3: totally, completely agree with them as well. I mean, people do need privacy and space and quiet to work, and you don't want to be observed. Um, and people are trying out things that could fail, and so on. But you do get these tantalizing glimpses when you're standing in the middle, and there's this new gallery space where you can see some of the students' work. It's only a small space, but you get these tantalizing glimpses to left and right of the corridor with the studios going off them and the corridors are chaos and they're extraordinary because they're a mixture of 19th century casts, which the students today, well, one or two are using maybe in a conceptual way, but in general, they're not using them at all. And sort of modern bits of stuff, bits of foam, you know, drills, you know, it's a working art school.
0: No, and I also love the fact that the Western Studio, which is the, which is the project space which the students and alumni of the RA schools are going to be able to use as a sort of exhibition space, I love the fact that that felt very different from the other galleries in, in the building in the sense that the floors are raw and it felt like much more like an art studio as yeah. opposed to a, a, a sort of plush gallery.
3: It's the most overtly contemporary slash rough space in the entire place. There's no interpretation either. The students didn't want this to be like an exhibition space. They just want you to see it as work in progress. There's no interpretation. They're not telling you what to think. You might like it. You might not like it. You might think, what on earth is this? I'm sure some of the people who work around the area, because it's going to be great for cafes and restaurants. There's now cafes and restaurants in both buildings linked by this bridge. Um, I think, you know, they'll stumble across something and they might like it. They might not. Um, But I think that's very much the concept.
0: Indeed. And off of the uh, school's area and the Western studio where they will be showing their work is this sort of grand staircase which leads you onto the bridge, which is which is a concrete space. And yet what's brilliant about it, I think, is, it, is that it, it doesn't, Feel imposed on this building and it doesn't feel out of place and yet it's a very different very contemporary material and I think that's what again what Chipperfield is so good at it's about creating spaces in which the modern the the, the right now converse with the historic in very sort of subtle ways
3: Yeah I mean I think for me that that was most apparent in the new contemporary spaces that once you get into the Burlington Gardens um, on one side there are these new contemporary spaces where the Tacita Dean show is currently installed and i thought that that was a very successful mixture of the i mean the buildings listed up to the eyeballs so there was a limit to what he would have been able to do but I think it's you've got two top lip galleries one is actually blacked out to make a video space but but will be there are two top lit galleries and in the middle there's a a gallery with side lighting and I thought that was a very successful mix of it's it's actually a rather heritage space when you look at it closely but the way he's treated it you can walk in there and just read it as a as a, a contemporary fairly neutral contemporary art gallery I mean I'm sure there are some artists who will find even that degree of historic space problematic, I have to say. Um, There are artists who I think really would prefer a true white cube or a kind of rough, concrete studio type space. Um, So it won't be for absolutely everybody, but I think if you compare those spaces to the classic 12 galleries, which are the centre of the Royal Academy's exhibitions, I think you can see that this is a much lighter touch much more contemporary treatment.
0: And this is an interesting aspect, I think, of the development in that um, the, the RA has created a new suite of galleries, which is, in footprint terms, is about the same square meterage as the Sackler Galleries, which are the upstairs galleries in the old building, Burlington House, and therefore not a major, major exhibition space for a kind of smaller kind of show. So it still means that when... The Royal Academy needs to do a major show of a modern or contemporary artist they are going to be in those main galleries and I know you've had sort of a bit of a problematic relationship with those galleries when seeing contemporary art and modern art in there.
3: Yeah I mean I think for me it was most obvious in the Abstract Expressionism show where I felt the work sat unhappily in those spaces i mean for those who remember it particularly the Rothko in the Rothkos in that kind of rotunda space and yet i have to say it worked fine for Ai way so i think there's an issue for the royal academy now they're self-funding which is obviously a challenge um but i think there's an issue for them about the degree to which they can clad and conceal those walls and ceilings and so forth when they when they need to i mean it can be done it's just it's very expensive
0: indeed now um Another aspect that is key to the Royal Academy's new presentation is to reveal that it has a collection because it's had a collection all this time and uh, it's it's been largely hidden or unknown for, for many people who visit the Royal Academy. They'll come and see the exhibitions and not be aware that there are actually significant collections that are part of the Royal Academy. Um, there is a collections gallery, a dedicated space for the collection. What did you make of it?
3: So I think part of the issue is that the collection isn't really one collection. It's a right mishmash of stuff. Some of it is works that were bought to teach the students. So classical sculptures, copies of very famous works that they were supposed to look at and either draw them or consider the formal qualities of the work. Some of them are these so-called diploma works, which is when you become an academician, you have to give... Um, one work at least one work some people in fact have I believe given more over the years but you have to give one work some people have given something really important and others are basically like oh can't you just take something I entered for the summer exhibition Um, and then on top of this there's a whole heap of archival material because over the years people have left works and archives in their legacy so it's a right old mix of stuff and I think they are sort of playing at the moment with what to do about that I think some things work very well. I think the works they've put in the vaults and they've put these little architectural interventions. So in one place, if you look, there's a whole load of casts of Roman capitals just hidden up on a corner of a wall with some information, which is very nice. I think some things work very well. I think with the collection gallery, it's been curated by Christopher Lebrun, who is the um, the, the president. Yeah. And the idea of the gallery, I understand it, is to show that um, Joshua Reynolds, he wanted the, well, he thought the basis of good art was the High Renaissance and classical antiquity. And then it rather traces what, in fact, actually happened. And what actually happened is that you've got these rather strange British painters like Fuseli and Thomas Lawrence. And the first thing you see is this enormous nude Satan I mean, I'm afraid the eye goes immediately to the kind of organza covered crotch of this Satan, uh, which, you know, doesn't fulfill any of Reynolds' requirements to be Renaissance or classical or anything else. It's this rather kind of mad painting. And by the end of the galleries, we're in the era probably when the academicians had probably the greatest influence in terms of world art history, which is is very much the time of uh, Gainsborough and Turner. And they're, of course, landscape painters and they aren't interested. Well, obviously, Turner was. They were interested, but the work they've done is not really following the Reynolds rules, if you like. Um, so I think that's the idea of the gallery. Um, my feeling is that that is easier to read if you have somebody talking you through it, to be honest. And I also think that... With the benefit of now thinking about the space, it's decorated in a rather traditional way, this dark blue and this dark red. And I think you weren't so... Keen no, on that I've, either.
0: Of all the spaces, I found this the most problematic. I think there are lots of really interesting things in there. There's some beautiful Constable of oil constable sketches. Clouds, are beautiful, yeah, absolutely stunning. And then there's a there's a there's a re, there's the great um, Thomas Gainsborough self portrait. There's Reynolds self portrait, and you know the the co- the the copy of of Leonardo's Last Supper is genuinely interesting because you can see the feet that famously you yeah. can't in the Milan. You know, Leonardo. But it was actually Leon- made in the
3: Renaissance. Yes, it was. It was yes. from the workshop of Indeed. Leonardo. Yeah, yeah. So it's an and, important piece.
0: And, and of course, you've got the Tade Tondo, which is a really genuinely major work by Michelangelo, which the which the, the Royal Academy has rather been, I mean, you know, the president of the Royal Academy said this morning that three men and, and his dog had seen the Tade Tondo in recent years. And, and now, now lots
3: of people will, but I'm still not sure about that dark blue surround.
0: No, I, I'm, I, it's, the, it's the way that every other space seemed to have a consistency which married the vision of Chipperfield with the with the with the academy's aims whereas i felt that this tried to impose too much of a kind of heritage feel onto spaces which had been given a sort of contemporary makeover and therefore there was a bit of tension which i found a bit problematic
3: however what's clear is a lot of those things are actually temporary fixtures so it's obviously a very flexible space i like the idea i like the idea of showing the things that The the ideas that informed the students, because that's really what we're talking about here. It's these are the things that the students used to study and in fact did study probably till the mid 20th century, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I like the idea. I think they just need to work a bit more on how that is presented.
0: One of the things about opening a new development is that museums have to get used to their spaces and then of course the Royal Academy will have to do that we'll have to learn how these spaces work we're not going to get immediately get a spate of absolutely perfect shows and in a way I like that in a new museum and it took quite a while for the spaces at Tate Modern to be really animated and for them to work out for instance that the the first room in lots of their exhibitions was too pokey so they needed to remove walls things like that and it's gonna take a while for the Royal Academy to get used to these spaces and to, to work out which work is best in them. And I think it's quite smart that they they've decided that in the galleries where Tessa Dean's exhibition, which is excellent by the way, is right now they're going to have an architectural exhibition in the autumn they're going to have a contemporary show like Tacitus at another time of year and then they'll fill the other space with other, another show so they've got a kind of an idea of how they're going to explore it but they're going to experiment.
3: Yes and I think what's interesting about the Royal Academy I mean it's run by the academicians by and for the academicians there's 80 of them and then there's I think another 40 or so 40 or 50 who are like honorees they're over 75. So they're like senior academicians. Yes, that's right. And it's run by and for them. And in one sense, this could make a rather dysfunctional organisation. And over the years, not now, but over the years, there have been periods when it's been pretty obvious that the Royal Academy has indeed been pretty dysfunctional. On the plus side, when the Academy is working, as it very much seems to be at the moment, when the Academy is working, it's in many ways, and the word eccentric is used quite a lot, but I would say in many ways, it's a less bureaucratic institution than your average museum. Um, I think there's less rules about how they do things. That was the point about the collection, really. It's not been a heavily curated collection where people sit down and look at the gaps and see if they can afford to fill the gaps and go and raise money or whatever. It's not got those sort of ideas around it. I think what I'm trying to say in a rather long-winded way is that if anybody can sort of react quickly and fix things quickly, I suspect it'll be the Royal Academy, I think they've now got a lot more space to play with and I think they could have a good time playing with it and see what works and what doesn't.
0: Jane, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: The new Royal Academy opens tomorrow, the 19th of May. And that's all for this week. You can tell us what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official.